Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Chuggy, chuggy. Have you ever been accused of being chuggy? This is a new word for me, but I am assuming my kids are about to start using it in relation to me. To be chuggy is to be someone who is doing things that are outdated and trying too hard. RJ, you've got kids who are the oldest here. Have you ever been accused of being chuggy? No. Cringe. Cringe, definitely. Really? That was that. Maybe that's the 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 former. Uh, was it Chuggy? Is that what it is? Chuggy. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll ask. I'll ask Spencer when I get home, and hopefully, I get a big eye roll. That's what I'm hoping for. Just the biggest <laughs> eye roll. I mean, asking there, about like, being Chuggy is itself Chuggy. I'm chuggy. assuming it is right, Sarah. It is. So it'll be a very meta moment. But yeah. No, um, I found this on Katie Couric's uh, newsletter, which I highly recommend i get it every morning in my inbox i love it so I much i met her in a bathroom once did Go you on. what i did hey. wait Wah-hoo-wah. no i guess so it... coming out of the bathroom anyway continue <laughs> i was like in a bathroom um, <laughs> i know i think i did go on okay um <laughs> she yeah it's just like i just think it's like very news you can use it's super digestible there's mm. always shopping i love it so anyway she had this piece about being chuggy that her uh, one of her daughters had used the term and what is it? It basically means like trying too hard. It, it's, it's a way of saying you're part of an outdated generation. I think yes. she talks about how she posted a picture of herself on Instagram. Um, I know we've sort of jumped into the, right in the middle of this, but she, she is, she's posted a picture of herself with a enormous water bottle. That's got some slogans on it that say like, keep going or you're almost yeah. there yeah. and gets a one word DM direct message from her daughter, Carrie, that just says, Chuggy, all caps. Can um, we just say it was really nice of her daughter to not write that in the comments? Yes, I think <laughs> so. I mean, that's, what is the etymology? What's the etymology right? of Chuggy? Where does that come from? She does not make this cringe made sense to me. Does not get is it the, French? Really? Like I don't. Like I how is know. like gnarly? I get like my. I hair. mean, my college students. Um, first of all, I'm sure have a hundred percent use this word about me, mm-hmm. like one hundred percent, but. I also like every time I'm around them, I learn a new like phrase or word and every, and I will say it to them. Like, I'll be like, Oh my gosh. Like that. Like, where did you get that from? And they'll all look at me like, I mean, we all say that. And I'm like, Oh, Okay, right. Is it like a steam-powered locomotive? Like choo-choo? Like what? I don't understand. I I think you're sounding incredibly choogy, even caring about the etymology. I'm embarrassed, but I'm inquiring minds want to know. I'm gonna say the choogiest thing. Okay. Okay. What do you got? It's, It's probably from a rap song. It's probably from a. Oh, those you kids think? with their rap music. Oh, those kids with their rap music. <laughs> this is what Katie Couric writes. She says, "Sadly, this was not the first time my daughter had described something I was doing with that newfangled term that oozed with disdain." So, what exactly does "chuggy" mean? Well, it's a neologism coined in 2013 and popularized by Gen Z as a pejorative to describe lifestyle trends associated with the early 2010s and millennials. It also describes people who are the opposite of trends 
trendy or her trying too hard. So then uh, Keurig uh, talks about a list uh, from BuzzFeed about things that are currently considered chuggy. And here you go, guys. Leggings, uh, graphic tees, jean jackets. I love jean jackets. They got to be a comeback. It's time. Come on. Isn't it it a comeback for? I literally have a jean jacket coming to my house that I ordered the other day. (laughs) You just okay. a, just a chug fest over there at the yeah, Condon House. Yeah, pretty Enjoy much. Enjoy watching The Office, yeah. Friends, or How I Met Your Mother. So sorry, those made the list too. But the biggest my affront, teenage sons do that. So yeah. okay, continue. The yeah. biggest well, affront yeah. on the BuzzFeed list of chuggy things is lasagna. What? How, how can I this love hearty... that they're going for lasagna, yeah. which is my what? favorite food. But yes. yeah. But how could it be so hopelessly out of fashion or trying too hard? That's what Couric asks. So she, but she then ends with a sort of a very sweet thing. She says, I actually don't mind these youngsters calling me or anyone else out. After all, they've been through hell, robbed of their oh. youth because of COVID and saddled with anxiety this. and depression because of the screwed up world they're inheriting. And didn't we accuse our elders of being chuggy in our own way? Wasn't tuna fish casserole chuggy? Chuggy is just a new word for a younger generation claiming their place in culture. Out with the old, in with the new. So for now, I will bask in my chugginess. I will wear my leggings and throw my jean jacket over a graphic t-shirt. After all, one person's chuggy is another's timelessness. Ooh. I love Katie. <laughs> the sweet note. I mean, I think that sometimes um, she's got a playful approach to yeah. cultural trends. And fashion yeah. is, as we know, it has one side. It has this enormous creativity and uh, just uh, outburst of, of color and interest and just cutting edge things. On the other side, fashion can be absolutely judgmental and the, the thing that makes you feel terrible uh, if you're trying to follow trends or if you're you're perceived as you have style or you don't have style. I, I think fashion such a, I mean, it's so fascinating basically because it goes in and out, because it's always oh, yeah. cutting edge and yet yes. it does, it cuts both ways. You know, you remember the times that people have told you you're wearing something or doing something that is simply in their parlance chuggy or simply not acceptable or not cool or the opposite of cool um what do you uh i, I find cultural this is it kind of borders on little l law and trying to conform um and yet uh where where Kirk is seeing it as, as sort of an expression of like it's our time to just to, to, to take over a little bit or to have something positive about our own experience that's not defined by yours because we've had such a hard time, right? I mean, is, mm. that, is that what... RJ, you don't seem to be buying it. RJ's not into this. I totally buy it, but I... Totally, but this is also... My boys always ask me, Dad, why do you always wear a polo khaki shorts and dock satters. I'm like, because I've given up, you know, <laughs> and, and it, this, you know, people were wearing this 30 years ago and they'll be wearing it yep, 30 years from now. That's true. That and is I'm not true. risking, I'm not risking being uh, chuggy. And, um, you know, I just, because I don't, I don't have time to think about that stuff. I also don't want to risk it. Honestly, mm. I don't want to risk anything well, that might would, make me look stupid. I would stupid. say you don't have time to think about it. He does. Uh, because I think a lot of people are really busy, but some people really love to think about it. Like, I think it's like you look, you look at cars. You have time to do that. Uh, sometimes, yes. And sometimes. It's true. And I, you know, and I enjoy clothes. Like, I do, I do think but what, they're... But, but fashion, when you, you're wearing it, like, it's really out there. Right, I can look at my cars in my private time, and nobody has to know. Right, it's Dave so could be true. obsessed with uh, with garbage pail kids, and nobody has to know. And nobody has to know. But fashion, you're literally wearing it, right? Yeah. So it's like it's a risk every time you walk I out your door that I'm not 
I'm not willing to take at this stage very of my life. Fun to me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Sarah's the, th- I Sarah's my the theater kid here, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I just, I was always kind of a crazy dresser. My mom was a crazy dresser. Neil, like this past week for church, layered three different shirts and put a bow tie on top of them. So like, it's Aww. kind of our bag, you know, yeah. like... So I, but but this I I just I sent this to you all because I just thought it was super gracious mm-hmm. um, that because so often this kind of intergenerational stuff which we talk a lot about is not gracious at all um, and you know I'm around Gen Z people and y'all they will walk up for lunch and it will look like Claire Danes from My So Called Life I mean they are like firmly in the 90s right now. And they're beautiful and it's and they they're doing more interesting things. And like I one thing I love is like they're all very comfort oriented. You know what I mean? So the skinny jeans are out and they're in these like high waisted mom jeans. And it's like because they're comfortable. And I don't know. I just I I kind of I, I also love this idea. And I see Katie Couric doing this a little bit where like you kind of step aside right when younger people come in and let them take up their space and i think there's something really instead of being hypercritical and and saying like oh we used to wear that like you're just like oh my gosh like they're exploring who they are and who they are in this world and and they have been through so much so i just i thought it was so lovely but Mm. no i I like it too i think there's a uh uh, I find trendiness to be um, something I've always found to be more interesting than oppressive, uh, oppressive, um, yeah. because it, it yields so much um, fruit. You know, there's this, uh, and yet the cyclical nature of it, it does sort of suggest, hey, not, there is nothing new under the sun. And right. yet, then you see something new. Um, I was, we were watching that Spider uh, Spider Man into the Spider Verse movie again the other night, and I thought this feels so new to me. This is like something I haven't mm. really seen before, and it mm. feels Agreed. really positive, and it doesn't feel like a throwback at all, even though it incorporates other stuff. Yeah. And I find that to be sort of a reason for living. I mean, I I I, I love that side yes. of things. Um, I I wonder as my kids, I've got a one of my sons is very actually into fashion, especially as it relates to sneakers, and like like hypewear and stuff like that, and and branding. And it's a whole different area that I don't have any. He he thinks I dress like a a, a total nerd as well, RJ. But he's if the shoe uh, fits. But I also look at the sneakers he's interested in, and they're so. I mean, half of them are the ones that we grew up with, like the Air Max threes or three sixties, or the and the Jordan fours and stuff like that. But then another half of them are these insane new things that are that are just exploding the possibility of a sneaker. Yeah. And I think to myself, I, I want to encourage this in him, while at the same time I personally uh, just want pants that. Uh, don't fall down you know it's like i don't necessarily need to i don't care how i look at this point in my life uh, or at least in uh i or i care about looking like i don't care about how i look let me put it that way mm. what carefully do you think? disheveled sarah what? carefully disheveled well isn't that what the internet taught us is that we're all pretending pretty much all of the time yeah i mean a hundred percent so yeah but i just i i you know we share that i have a son who's like very, we we're on our second pair of hardens like he loves oh flashy gosh. tennis shoes and um, me too 100 percent. they're just beautiful i mean they're really beautiful like the colors and you know it's so interesting and the colorway uh, excuse the colorways that's what they're called yes yeah <laughs> yeah and i just i don't know i I just, I love it. I mean, there was this guy at our church 
And I remember he was like this very accomplished, had worked under the Bush administration, like had this whole life. And uh, we were over for dinner at their house with another older couple. And the other gentleman uh, who was a guest said to this parishioner, like, don't you wish the young people would listen to you more? Like, shouldn't they be paying more attention to you? Like, you have so much to say. And he was like, no, like, this is the time when I get out of the way. Mm. And it made such a big impact on me, you know? So I don't know. I just like love getting out of the way, getting out of the way. It doesn't mean that we're not going to, we don't want to see and hear from Katie Couric all the time. She's a delight. No, but I think, I do think there's, there can be this reactionism when we feel called out as like older where we're just like, you know, we're so important and you shut up. And I just think that's like so unhelpful, you know? For me, it's like I see them. I see a lot of kids these days wearing like reprinted concert shirts from like, I don't know, the Rolling Stones or the police or something like that. And you want to be like, name three songs, you know, (laughs) or me. And it's like, that's the worst tendency I have in all. I repent right here. But that never occurs to me. But I love it. I want to see you do that. I want to see you with with a camera, like walking up to these kids with a mic. That's what I want to see. Name three songs. No, I want him. I want him to start a chorus. Like I want him to sing it and then shove the mic in their face. (laughs) It's like I saw a kid wearing a, a Pink Floyd Animals tour shirt. And I was like, hey, are you? excited that there might finally reissue animals with a box set it hasn't happened why'd they do the wall and not in and they're, they're, the, the kid looked at me is like wait what and i just thought to, i felt <laughs> so chuggy. i was like you're wearing <laughs> a shirt that's actually advertising something that really happened but uh I, you overwhelmed moment, the poor kid yeah. it's like why is this old person talking to me let me that never is away. amazing babe. let me never talk to him again you I was just like, need to walk and be like don't stand don't stand and then just shove the mic in his face Exactly. <laughs> uh, so let's get let's keep talking about the younger generation. I think this is interesting. Uh, there is a long interview in the New York Times Magazine with Lori Santos this week. Lori Santos uh, teaches a course on happiness, um, psychology, and the good life at Yale University. It has become one of the school's most popular classes. In fact, the first year it was offered, nearly a quarter of undergraduates of the student body enrolled. Now, either she's just an amazing teacher, which it sounds like she is. She's got a podcast, too. Um, don't we all? Uh, <laughs> but what does she, that mean? She, uh, it's noticed like all these high, the, 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 the interviewer is interesting because all these high achieving kids who seem to have certain things figured out, um, uh, they don't know how to be happy. And they're very interested in like mm. what this means, how to live the good life. What, what is, um, I remember uh, reading William Derezowitz wrote that famous book, uh, Excellent Sheep, where he said kids today at Ivy League schools, at least, are extremely good at things that they have no idea why they're doing. Um, <clears throat> uh, but this is, they ask her this, say, this is, there's a lot here. She said, uh, the, the interviewer says, we all have more resources about how to be happy uh, than any humans ever. And yet so many of us find, still find it so hard to figure out how to be happier. Why is that? This is what she says. She says, this is the way I frame a lot of the talk about happiness. Our minds lie to us. We have strong intuitions about the things that will make us happy, and we use those intuitions to go after that stuff, whether it's more money or changing circumstances or buying the new iPhone. But a lot of those intuitions, the science shows, are not exactly right or are deeply misguided. That's why we get it wrong. I know this stuff, but my instincts are off. After a busy day, I want to sit and watch crappy Netflix TV shows, even though I know the data suggests that if I worked out or called a friend, I'd be happier. But to do that, 
I have to fight my intuition. We need help with that, and you don't get it naturally, especially in the modern day. There's an enormous culture uh, around us of capitalism that's telling us to buy things and a hustle achievement culture that destroys my students in terms of anxiety. We're also fighting cultural forces that are telling us you're not happy enough or happiness could be just around the corner. Now, I want to pause before I give the, her, her next answer. Um, what do you think our intuitions lie to us? Hashtag low anthropology. Yeah. What do you think about, I mean, she's, uh, what, yeah, RJ, what do you think? I, my first thought is the intuition, not that everyone has, but I think the segment of the population that this professor is speaking to, your intuition is always, I have to do something about it. I have to do something. And maybe the answer to happiness a little bit more is, is no, you don't. You can, you can do, it's okay to do nothing. It's okay to rest in the moment. It's okay to wait. It's okay to not be active all the time. Because even the way she couches the decisions between, do I watch a Netflix show or do I work out? What do I do? Why does it always have to be a choice about doing something? And I fall prey to this, right? I always have to be doing something. And yet, performancism, production, um, while it is satisfying a lot of the time, also can leave you pretty burned out and empty feeling. Um, and that doesn't seem to be an option that's held out yeah. very often. You know, what about the option to just do nothing? What do you think, What Sarah? about the option to, as Chad Bird said, uh, I love in the, in the devotional, um, when God says, be still and know that I am God, it's actually more rightly translated, shut up and know that I'm God. <laughs> you know, stop talking and stop doing anything and let me fight your battles for you. Um, so sorry, Sarah. You know, I have this mom's group at church and we did Zoom last night and these women were like, uh, you know, I'm sorry we haven't been around church a lot. And I was just finally like, yeah, so like none of you have been around church a lot. It's okay. You know, like it's okay. And I know that everyone is, I don't know, there's like, it's, it's like a whole debate in the church right now where everyone's like, it's time for everyone to come back. And this is when we tell them. And I'm like, yeah, cause that always works. <laughs> always. That absolutely works to shame people into coming back a hundred percent. Also like these women have children who are old enough to be vaccinated yet and they're terrified. Mm. And it's like, yeah, I mean, one of them just got through chemo and she's terrified. And it's like, you know, I think just to be able to say, like, rest in grace. Like, you're going to come back when you're ready to come back. This is the time you really need it. Yes. Mm. Like, it's just, I, I don't know. So, I, yeah, I guess I, I struggle. I'm interested to see what else you're going to read, Dave, because I actually struggle. Like, I, when you read this, I was like, gosh, I'm uncomfortable. I can't figure out why. And it's, RJ said it. Like, it's this weird, like, well, you do the good thing or you do the bad thing. And it's like, what if you do nothing, you know? Well, it kind of plays into, I'm going to skip one answer. We'll, we'll come back to you. But she, they, they, the, the yeah. what if it doesn't says, actually matter? <laughs> is right. it possible that practices that lead to happiness, like accepting anxiety, avoiding mm -hmm. comparison with others, and being satisfied with what we already have can also lead to complacency. Don't you need some of the emotional detrimental stuff in order to achieve? Oh. This is what she said. This is basically like, should we sin more that grace may abound? This is what they're asking. She, said, she says, people have looked at this in the context of things that we worry about when it comes to complacency. Huge problems from anti-black violence to the climate falling apart. We need people to recognize these issues, get angry, and take action. There's a worry that maybe if you follow these practices, you'll be so complacent, i.e. happy, that you'll let California burn. <laughs> 
There's been some lovely work on this by a researcher named Kostatin Kushlev. What he finds is that the people who self-report the highest positive emotions, they're the ones who are taking action. This comes up Mm. in other domains, too. There's evidence that people who experience more gratitude have a high level of what's called self-regulation, kind of like sucking it up and doing the hard things. Now, there's also evidence that people who are more grateful are more likely to do things for other people. So I worry about complacency, but the evidence suggests that it doesn't work in the way we might expect. When you do have some positive emotion, you have the bandwidth to deal with other things. A hundred percent. I mean, that's grace. I mean, that's what yes. I mean, you're saying. These people, the kids don't have to do anything or these Christians don't right. have to do anything. That's right. going to mean that they're all just going to do nothing. But the, it is a deep fear. And it's especially a fear among, I think, students and younger people that like, uh, if we tell them it's okay not to be completely anxious about that next grade, that they will somehow stop achieving and they'll stop doing anything or they won't care about the less fortunate or if we don't constantly shame them about how much they have they will never give give of themselves and what she's saying is the 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 truth is that that's actually not how it works um yeah complacency is not the problem that people think it is or at least it works differently i mean i remember like the sharp contrast when i went on um Lexapro. This episode brought to you by our sponsors at Lexapro. (laughs) Um, I suddenly like wasn't writing as much and it's because I didn't have this like anxious drive in my head that was like, you have to write more. You have to keep producing. People want to read what you write. Like you have to have a take on this. And, um, and I realized I was going to have to make an exchange for writing more for actually having a better quality of life. Um, where I was happier and, um, and I will take that shit all day, every day, you know, like that's worth it to me. Like, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm able to be more present in my life. I have more capacity for happiness and I'm, you know, but that also means like I'm less productive in terms that the world defines as productivity. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is, I mean, it is very reassuring to hear this. The other thing I would say is like, and I'm sure Dave, you've seen this you know, and, and RJ, I'm sure you've seen it cause you've worked with, with young people before. Like the other thing that happens is you're like, I have to do this. I have to do that. I'm going to sign up for this and I volunteer for that. I have to make really, 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 really good grades. And suddenly you're, you actually can't get out of bed. Yeah. You actually are super depressed. Like, cause you just don't have any more capacity anymore. Um, yeah, I, so. I find that there's an, a cultural assumption whitewashed that, tombs. Yeah. That, yeah. that, sh- that shame, uh, can motivate, uh, goodness and it just it can motivate a few things i mean it can can motivate you very in the short term but like yeah and by the shame i mean yelling at in my case it's like sort of young kids who grew up at prep schools like yelling at them about how privileged they are it's like that may be the case they may be too privileged but has yelling at people about that ever inspired them to do it to do lasting service in the world um it it yeah, it just, just it just doesn't work it doesn't it doesn't mean it's less true but it's it didn't work when it came to you when yeah. your when your parent tried it with you because you weren't grateful enough in your own economic or context um 
that's what I find that the complacency thing is a, is a, there's a fear about, well, we can't allow people to relax because there's California is burning. And mm-hmm. the truth is, as I think Nadia said it, like it's, I can only focus on one fire at a time. And I'm going to, yeah. if I'm thinking about all the fires all the time and how I've personally contributed to them, then I'm just going to sort of go walk into the fire and, you know, yeah. get, let myself get burned yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, r- also, like, should I get a bucket? Like, what do you want me to do? Yeah, t- you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, that's that's the, I don't know. RJ, what, just- what are you thinking? Well, I was thinking two things. One, this is a bit pithy, but true. I wish Vladimir Putin was a little more complacent. You know, I think there's yeah, a lot of things that happen that in nice? the world because, uh, you know, as, as Blaise Pascal said, all the evil in the world can be boiled down to a person's inability to sit quietly in a room by themselves. Yeah. We have to have something to do. I've got to justify my existence. I got to do something. Grow, grow, you know, grow. And so, <clears throat> mm-hmm. got to grow. You got to do something. Take, um, take, take. But on the flip side of the anxiety thing, I think I found a little peace the past couple years. Like, don't get me wrong. I want to be a little bit less anxious than I am, but I'm also coming to terms with the fact that my, and I don't, I don't start so from like, um, diagnosable anxiety, you know, I'm just sort of generally an anxious person, <laughs> Okay. but I also, well, so I if say, if you need to think so, baby, that's fine. Okay. okay keep thank going. you. I appreciate, thank you for allowing me to maintain my illusions. Um, I'm coming to peace with the fact that this is kind of sort of who I, this is who I am. Yeah. And it, it's part of what makes me who I am and makes me good at some of the things I'm good at, you know, like preaching or teaching or just generally caring about things. Or and my wife is kind of the same way, you know, like our marriage therapist said to us at one point, she's like, you seem to be pretty comfortable living with your hair on fire. And we're like, yeah, we are, you know, mm-hmm. and we sort of wish we weren't, but we are. And we'd like to be a little bit less of our hair on fire. But then when we um, actually have a moment to take a deep breath, we're not sure we like it. You know, so part of it is embracing your whole self, you know, and not just the things that you um, like, but also the things that you maybe wish were a little bit different, but recognizing that they're kind of what make you who you are. And also that, as the great Bishop um, Ed Salmon once said, uh, love relationships necessarily create anxiety. When you love Mm -hmm. someone or something, you worry about it or you worry about them. What, you know, if there's like no love, there, if there's no love, there's no worry. There's no love, there's no, there's, love. there's no grief. Uh, there's no grief without love. Yeah. No, but if there is, yeah. then there is. Worry. And that's okay. That's, yeah. you know, I don't need to be anxious about the fact that I'm anxious. Like, Well, yeah. she touches enough. down into our personal spheres in with one of these questions where a the uh, I think the Times uh, writer astutely asks... He says, a lot of the stuff that we can know can have a positive effect on happiness, developing a sense of meaning, connection with other people, meditation and reflection are commonplace religious practices. How helpful are they outside of religion, he asks. This is what she says. Celebration of discipline. (laughs) There's evidence that cultural structures, religious structures, even smaller groups like CrossFit can cause true behavior change. The question is what's driving that? Take the religious case. You could mean two things by saying you need a cultural apparatus around the behavior change. One is you need a rich sense of beliefs. You need to buy into theological principles to get the benefits. Another, that is your commitment to these groups that does it, and it doesn't have to come with a set of spiritual beliefs. There's a lot of evidence that religious people are happier in a sense of life satisfaction and positive emotion in the moment. But is it the Christian who really believes in Jesus and reads the Bible, or is it the Christian who goes to church, goes to the spaghetti suppers, donates to charity, participates in the volunteer stuff? 
turns out to the extent that you can disentangle those two, that's a big caveat. I uh, was like, what? <laughs> uh, she doesn't say that. It seems to not be our beliefs, but our actions that are driving the fact that religious people are happier. That's critical because what it tells us is that if you can get yourself to do it, to meditate, to volunteer, to engage with social connection, you will be happier. But it's m- just much easier if you have a cultural apparatus around you. Now, this is kind of me talking. I, I This is one of my pet peeves because you you hear this um, language all the time about, okay, religious people are happier and the sole reason that is is because of their increased social connections. Like you just, you you go to church and you see people. And I think that that's very important. And we've talked about it every, every couple weeks on this podcast, we give this advertisement for church is the only place you're going to go and be with these people that you may not even like, that there have no other reason to get in together with. There's no affinity Mm -hmm. other than simply, um, you're there and you're frankly on your knees together in, in Jesus. And yet, I think that I'm just correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like there's such a, a resistance to the idea of what if something about the hope that they are receiving on a weekly basis or that that's being preached to them uh, did have an impact on their well-being? Like, would that ever get? There's sort of such a resistance to believing that. It's like it feels like there's a. I, I sound cynical, but there's like a, a. What if it's both of these things? Right. And it'd be much more interesting to me if you found out within religious circles who are the people that tend to be happier and who are the tend to be most more anxious. I have a feeling that we would be talking about the ones who were frightened of hellfire and damnation would probably be very anxious and not that happy, even though they are bounded by social networks. I have a feeling that folks, uh, or a, a suspicion that those who are being preached the grace and forgiveness of God uh, and in Christ would, and in the face of death, hope in the face of actual physical death, I have a feeling that that would have an impact, especially as it in, to the extent that it creates not fear of one's neighbor, but love of one's neighbor. Um, I, is this just me trying to confirm my own biases? I mean, what like, all I can think about is, like, the only people, and it's rarely happened, but who have ever yelled at my children at church are the people who volunteer for, like, everything and are always, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, they're just, like, super keyed up all the time, so much so that they think that they're also in charge of the outdoor altar that just for the record looks a lot like a playscape if you're a four-year-old boy, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's just like, it, that is like an interesting thought is I, I, I just like, do not like this idea that this, that these are two different like archetypes of church people that like, I think if you're the person that is showing up to do all this stuff. You're also a person that has a rich spiritual life. Like I don't think the inner interior life, like I, I just don't, I haven't met that person at church that like shows up and does everything. And I'm not saying like they don't struggle with their faith. I think struggling with faith, faith is a part of having a deep interior spiritual life. Right. Um, but I think those are the same person. I, just, I don't know. Yeah, it's like, it's like, like a false thing. Is like the, there, there, there's a perception that there's these vast amounts of churchgoers out there who don't really care one way or the other what's being said. Uh, and they're just there for the community. And then there's all these, then these is sort of like a killjoys who care uh, deeply about uh, Christianity right. and, and like, the gospel, but don't care about their neighbor. And I think what you're saying is it's like no one's ever read Mary and Martha. You know what I mean? I guess the one thought that occurred to me was how serving at church is not cool. 
you know, it's not the cool thing to do. And that if part of me um, thinks, you know, now that I'm a priest, I shouldn't say this, but before I was a priest, it's like, if I can find anything better or cooler to do than go serve at church, I'll go do that instead, <laughs> right? But that um, maybe those who serve at church are the ones who just kind of given up on what's cool. And they actually just sort of want to be happy and they recognize it like being around other people and serving at church while it might not be um, carry much cultural weight. You know, they're not going to brag about it at the cocktail party. Um, it actually just does kind of make them happy. You know, maybe, maybe there's something to be said more for that, that the, the gospel is sunk into a degree that they don't need to be cool, um, that they can be chuggy. And uh, mm. you know, serve a church. It sounds like you're so. describing you describing church. yourself here. Um, but it does <laughs> strike me. I think church is cool. I think it's like the coolest thing ever. I never want to do anything. I else. know you do, which is why you wrote a book called Churchy. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do, which is why I love you. And we have like young moms on the go like we think it's cool. Like we'll talk about it at like church cocktail parties. You know, <laughs> that's about the extent of it. Uh, but I do know there's one more answer she gave that I thought was this was this was truly fascinating to me. Okay. They ask her, is there anything surprising to you that people are just not getting about happiness? She says this for my students, it's often money. My fast read of the evidence is that money only makes you happier if you live below the poverty line and you can't afford to put food on your table and then you can afford to. Whether getting super rich actually affects different aspects of your well-being, there's a lot of evidence it doesn't affect your positive emotion too much. Yes, there was a recent paper by Matt Killingsworth where he was trying to make the claim that happiness continues as you get to higher incomes. And he's right, but if you plot it, it's like if you change your income from $100,000 a year to $600,000, your happiness goes up from like a 64 out of 100 to a 65. For the amount of work you have to put in to sextuple your income, you could instead just write in a gratitude journal or you could sleep an extra hour. I think that yeah, that's like, totally. it's, I, I always tell, watch these students and I, I, I feel for them as, as Katie Couric does, but uh, when, especially when they're in romantic relationships and they want to get married and they're trying to, you know, figure out two different career paths. And I watch as Nine times out of ten, they try to either make both work or they simply choose the career opportunity over the love interest. And while the career opportunity is never negligible, it's never like unimportant. If you look at the actual studies, to say nothing of like you know any kind of wisdom tradition, um, the uh, a a sort of a, a loving spouse in your life will increase your well-being like fifty times more than another. Yeah a job. And so like, they, yeah. but they're never willing to, they rarely are they willing to sacrifice in one, that direction. They always sacrifice in the other direction. So I, I concur with what she's saying about her students fighting her on this. I, um, I, one of my dearest, dearest friends, uh, from Mississippi, um, her mom, anyway, there's, there's money there. There was like a rural cable company, which is like the most Mississippi story ever. And, um, it's so funny that her grandmother owned and started or some crazy thing. But I remember her mom, uh, said to me one time, you know, Sarah, money won't make you happier, but it will make things easier. And I always thought that was like a really, you know, helpful way to look at, at the desire for more of it. Um, but yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I find this whole conversation really fascinating. Um, <laughs> I hope so. It's kind of why. Well, I mean, it's just kind of wild to think about uh, sort of the different ways that we 
expect happiness in our lives. And I think about the things that have like in the long term made me happiest and they were actually really hard things. Like I think about having babies, you know, was like really, really hard and nothing makes me happier than my children or like having been married for 15 years, which is really, really hard at certain points. And, you know, I mean, and honestly, like after losing mom and dad, I know this is crazy, but every single day when I pray at night, I thank God that another day has passed where nothing catastrophic has happened. And that makes me really Mm. happy. That's like Mm. every, every day I'll be like, Oh my God, a whole day went by where nothing horrible happened. How amazing. And like, that's a happy thought for me. So it's weird. Like how I think the hard things are what make us happy. But I just, I don't, I think faith is such a huge um, component here that, um, no one wants to ever acknowledge because there is a hope in faith, right? There's hope beyond our circumstances. There's a way to make sense of our struggle. I mean, I just rewatched and I highly recommend it. The whole interview that, um, Stephen Colbert did with Anderson Cooper. And it's just, especially now for me to watch it, it just, it's just brilliant, you know, and Steve and Stephen Colbert is a happy, he's a happy dude, you know, with a ch- ch- ton of loss. So I don't know. It also strikes me that the pursuit of happiness is a uniquely American contribution mm-hmm. to kind of world culture, you know, and I, I don't want to say that happiness has not always been a thing. Like I've got to think people at all times and all places have wanted to be happy. And I was going to say that, but then I thought about maybe it's not the happiness, it's the pursuit, the pursuit that happiness has to be something that we achieve. Yeah. It's a goal that we reach. It's a byproduct. And that the goal fact, is, yeah. and that it's, and that it's not, it's not the pursuit of contentedness. It's the pursuit of happiness. And those yeah. are different things, right? Contentedness, I feel like is almost a dirty word in America, right? It's like it's like resignation. It's like compla- it's almost like oh, complacency. Yeah. Right? Is. But it's it's I remember um Mark Laberton, who's this amazing he's now the president of Fuller, but he was my um pastor at my Presbyterian church in in, in uh, college, once said American culture is an organized assault on contentedness. Mm-hmm. And I said, Oh, that was very inside. I've never forgotten that. Um, but imagine how much different our culture would be if, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of contentedness. That would be but that's not what we want. We want happiness all the time, all as the much time. as possible, and it's never enough. I want to. We're going to shift gears real quick to something that with the School of Life uh, that actually was was highlighted this past weekend. Uh, Ethan Richardson of, of of former Mockingbird fame is teaching a course. He's a therapist, and he's teaching a course on sort of communication in relationships. And I think one of the ways we try to uh, make our lot better or easier is through the process of nagging, nagging. This is a fascinating story on nagging. So this is what uh, Alan de Botton or the School of Life says. Nagging, have you ever been nagged, is the dispiriting, unpleasant, counterproductive, but wholly understandable and poignant version of a hugely noble ambition, the desire to change other people. There's so much we might want fairly to change about them. We're an entirely imperfect lot. And so we want others to be more self-aware, punctual, generous, reliable, introspective, resilient, communicative. At home, we want them to focus more on the sink, the children, the bins, the money, and the need to put the phone down and look up. At a micro dimension, we might want to think more about the suffering of encaged animals, the destruction of our habitat, and the iniquities of capitalism. 
The desire to change people is no pathology. It's a clear-sighted recognition of human wickedness. That's his word. Nagging is, in its essence, an attempt at teaching, but it is also a version of teaching that has given up hope. It has descended into an attempt to insist rather than invite, to coerce rather than charm. One has grown too tired and humiliated by constant rebuffs to have the energy to seduce. Lamentably, it doesn't work. By the time one has started humiliating the student, the lesson is over. Nagging breeds its evil twin, shirking. The other pretends to read the paper, goes upstairs and feels righteous. The shrillness of one's tone gives them all the excuse they need to trust that we have nothing or kind or true to tell them. One changes others only when the desire that they evolve has not reached an insistent pitch, when we can still bear that they may remain as they are. All of us improve only when we have not been badgered or made to feel guilty, only when we have a sense that we are loved and deeply understood for the many reasons why change is so hard for us. We know, of course, that the garbage bins need our attention, that we should strive to get to bed earlier, and that we have been a disappointment in the couple. But we can't bear to hear these lessons in an unsympathetic tone. We want, tricky children that we are, to be indulged for our ambivalence about becoming better people. The tragedy of nagging is that its causes are usually so noble, and yet it doesn't work. We nag because we feel that our possession of the truth lets us off having to convey it elegantly. First of all, I feel personally attacked. Because <laughs> I'm definitely the nagger in my marriage and in my motherhood. Because um, I am tired sometimes, and I do just want people to do right. Mm-hmm. And I know better. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and it does not work. But... But the other thing I would say is, is that what we're doing from the pulpits to try to get people back to church? Yes. I mean, that's, yes. (laughs) I think so. I think it is. I think it is. And to his point, they, they actually will come back. They will come back for one whole Sunday and then they won't come back again. I mean, that's that. I think that is very real. But you can make people feel bad. You can nag them and, yeah, they got to show up and you should show up and you should be here. And you know what? It's going to work once and then they're not going to come back again. It's, it is one of these things where, like, just think about how it works in your own family, you know? Yes. It's, think about how it works with you. Yeah. Think about I mean, why your daughter lives in California. <laughs> right. You know, why your son never calls. I mean, yeah. it's brutal, but it's real, you know? I just, it doesn't. You say that. I mean, oh. I think I'm sort of the nag in our in my marriage. Um, Are you? But uh, oh. I I am for sure. No one ever. No one would be bold enough to nag me about anything. Right. <laughs> I mean, they, I believe that. I believe that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they get near it and they're like, no, no, no. I see the look she's about to give me. That's a bad idea. So. <laughs> <laughs> take cover. Take cover. Exactly. This article made me think about two. Mm sort of little stories from my life, which I probably have told both of these at some point. One was, I think it was Tom Becker, the the wonderful, amazing Tom Becker, who said to me once, who's in, you know, he's in recovery, he's been in recovery for decades. Um, he's a, you know, he's an alcoholic. Um, but he said in AA, the need to change anyone is taken as a, um, a sign of a lack of faith. Mm. Because if you actually believed in God, actually believed in a God who could change people, you would not feel the need to do so yourself, nor would you dare to believe that you know what that person needs. Because only God knows and only God can do it. And I was like, whoa, the need to change somebody is, is demonstrates a lack of faith. Like, yes. Um, And then the other thing was 
when Jamie and I had been married, I don't know how long, maybe 10 years, something like that, a little, little less, we encountered this idea um, that, that, you know, of the bound will, that free will might not be such a Christian idea, you know, that we're all kind of um, somewhat enslaved to our, we can't change ourselves, basically, and we're like, what would it be like if we actually believed that? Um, and of course, if you believe that, it means you have to, like, actually believe in God and believe in the Holy Spirit if you're going to stay married to somebody. And I, I remember we realized, you know, we were we were both Christians when we got married, and I was like the the really good Christian boy who's like, I'm only marrying a Christian. I got to marry a Christian, right? I don't want to be, what, what is it? unequally yoked or something like that oh, from Corinthians. Yeah. Is that the thing? You know, I got to marry a Christian. It's a thing. And I thought it was just to like sort of share a belief system or, you know, because of Jesus and that's mm-hmm. true. But I also think it's because if you do believe in Jesus and you do believe in the Holy Spirit, it does actually tamp down your need a little bit, not always, but a little bit to control your spouse. And you yeah. always want to control your spouse. You always want them to be different than they are. Right, and if you can sort of shove that aside and say, "No, um, I can't change them. I'm not going to try to change them. God can. God will. He knows what's best." Um, and that also the genuine love, as Baton sort of um, uh, suggests, is loving someone um, even if they never change. Yeah. And because that's what you want. You want someone to love you even if you're if you never change. And people do change. But maybe, but sometimes they don't, and that's okay. And well, did, um, RJ, letting, you, holding it all with a loser you hand. Know, you yourself once told me the law says, "I will love you when and if you change," and the gospel says, "Yes, I will love you uh, in spite of the fact that you may never, mm. may never change." That's and right. I think the gospel also says, "I will love you if if you do like um, if you change in ways that I'm not thrilled about." <laughs> Like, I think it's yeah. that's right. De, de Bauton yeah. talks elsewhere the old, about yeah. giving love is often looks like the space to allow a person to, um, you know, to to not necessarily for you not to dictate their path of growth either. You know, because they are gonna they're gonna stay the same in ways you don't want them to, and they're gonna change in ways you don't want them to. Um, it, it rarely happens that we just the, another person that we love follows our plan for their life or in. I, I, yeah I mean it isn't this all just about us right I mean that's the thing is like I mean it reminds me, me of me, like me, pretty me. early in our marriage we'd had Neil and I was like we need to go to marriage therapy like you're driving me crazy and we went to marriage therapy and the marriage therapist I was like we gonna fix him like that's why we're here okay I brought this guy you're gonna fix him and we showed up and it was like she just looked at me and she was like I think this is about you and your behavior like in our first session and I was like sugar jets you know like <laughs> sugar jets <laughs> this, this was not a part of my plan I'm not the one that needs to change you know so I think that that all of this nagging really I mean on some level it is like right when I think about the things I nag my husband about or my kids about a lot of it is like how will how but how will the world perceive us but how will the world perceive me mm. Mm-hmm. As the mother who's taking mm. care of you or as the wife who's running a household. like, But how will I be perceived? I think it's like often like, you know, it's the crippling thing that the nagger is probably dealing with. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I do think that people who are incessant nags often are not 
somehow in control. Just like if you need, you don't need to be nagged about your nagging. Like being told to stop nagging doesn't work either. You know, it's like it's a, yeah. a nagging is a form of control. I think it's usually yeah. and it's usually is something For that's sure. given up on trying to be nice. And it's like mm-hmm. I'm just going to needle you until you do the, the damn thing I want you right. to do. Um, mm-hmm. But it does drive people wedges between them, and it does it is perceived as judgment. It does it's very rarely heard. Um, as 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 such it's like i know i need to write those thank you notes like i i, I right um Ugh. but i also think the person who is doing that is just as in need of compassion as the one who is as the the bum you know the the type a as of much course. as the type b as you might say yeah. it's not just grace for the type b here um yeah because uh yeah nagging is is a very understandable response to the fact that we're all broken and um mm-hmm. it's it, it, and sometimes it just is too much to try to muster up some sympathy for another person even the person you claim to love and have made vows to you know Especially that person. Especially them. That's right. Especially them. Well, the quote I was. Yeah. None, I was none of this even business, Dave. That's an especially, okay? <laughs> true, true, true. What are you saying, Arch? <laughs> but, well, the quote is uh, uh, women marry men hoping they'll change, and men marry women hoping they won't. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, there's. That is very true. That's a bad. It's a bad. But it's, it's. I didn't make that up. That's that's out there. No. Apparently, someone thinks Einstein said it, but he didn't. Someone else did. Continue. <laughs> No comment. Uh, <laughs> yes. So we're going to move into a couple of different things more about the church. Uh, this first one comes is in America Ooh. magazine, which is the Jesuit. Sarah's favorite topic. The Jesuit magazine um, by Tori Lightcap. I love that name. As an Episcopal priest, I'm used to polite worship. But what we need oh, to make room for. Uh, sorry. But we need to make room for unfiltered pain at church, too. It's a little bit like what we talked about in the crying in church episode. Um, he, he talks about growing up in... Um, a rural spot uh, with his grandmother who was attended an Assemblies of God's church, a small church. And he talks about the prayer time. He says, I recall the words of the petitions of mainly these older women and their breathless urgency, such as, and Lord, if only my dear Ralph could walk away from that bottle and just tell us he loves us. You can help him do that, Lord. Can you? Will you help him do that, Lord? Or Jesus, please bring us a living. The time of prayer went on like this, followed by the fading petitions, uh, fading of petitions into a ponderous silence, and you just knew the spirit was stirring the pot. Even at the age of four, I knew it was tragic, or rather that it had to do with tragic circumstances, and it called for the most skilled and sympathetic of pastoral advisors. Well, across the tiny room, grandma's gnarled hands, warm and ready, ready over piano keys, would choose the right moment. And in the air, we would hear her most cherished tune. We would wait instinctively and sing out. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. I'll cherish it, I'll cling to it, I'll trade it for a crown. In the four decades since, in the untold hours I've spent in churches as an Episcopal priest, this is the same writer, I've come to formulate and hold an incendiary question. Why do mainliners like me feel we can't worship like this? Is expressive religion simply too expressive for liturgical types? What is at risk in giving it all away to God, like the ladies in that church seem to be so free to do? Is it because we have not been ground so far down by life that we have yet uh, a sense of urgency about these things? I wouldn't know, but I kind of doubt it. We're all going through something. Would it be socially out of bounds to pray prayers some might characterize as loud, emotional, indecorous, or overly specific? Do we believe God to be incapable or disinterested to respond if we are too shouty? Or are we so used to simply whispering the names of those we love during the prayers that we can't imagine another way? 
Might we be afraid of finally getting God's attention? And what then? All these years in Episcopal congregations, I keep listening for the urgency. During this long stretch of the pandemic, I think I'm hearing that urgency from time to time. I don't necessarily mean something audible, but the sensation in the room of a people at prayer motivated by extreme circumstance, interior keening, quietly driven, silently guttural, but still the pointed result of some clear pain. Raw lament is alive in public worship, whether expressed with words or in the stillness of heart and gut. I want to remain mindful of the need we have to articulate it in whatever way we would do it, in whatever way aligns with our tradition and practice. I want to hold a space for it as surely as I hear Jesus beckoning to himself all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens. I loved this piece. Um, I love it now because we're talking about nagging, and I'm like, perhaps those people are just bold enough to nag God, and God mm. is the one person who yes. can handle it, you know, or the one whatever being that yes. can handle our nagging. Um because that's essentially that's so good, what Sarah, they're that's doing, so good. right? Is like, yeah. That's what I the mean, Psalms are. And yes, what are the Psalms if not nagging God? Nagging God. Yes. Yes. It's so good. I mean, I just, you know, it reminds me of um, uh, Dave, your dad, saying that, and and this has like been quoted to me by several different people. So I've never heard him say it, which is so funny. But different people who've had hard things in their life have talked to your dad about those hard things, and your dad has said. Well, you should you should be angry with God because God's the only one who can do anything about it. And you know, I think we don't have that kind of innate sense in our denomination. Um, I don't I don't think it's absent entirely. And I that's part of the reason I love this piece is I felt like it was so graciously written. Um, you know, we have a place in our liturgy in the prayers of the people where, you know, where you can sort of hold a silence and people can say things out loud. And I grew up at a church where everyone's a former Southern Baptist, including the priest. So people actually said things out loud. Um, people felt the freedom to do that. And then I wasn't ever someplace where people did that again until I became a college minister and um, when everything was happening with and still is happening with between Hong Kong and China, um, China is sort of trying to, you know, basically take the take it back. Right. And it's terrifying. I had a student who who was who is totally American, has no family there. Right. And every single time we did the prayers of the people, he prayed for the people of Hong Kong in their fight out loud in front of everyone. And I, I just, I mean, it's incredibly moving, you know? Um, and I, I, it's funny, I used to really fully inhabit the space of like, we need to be more like that, you know? And then my parents died and the liturgy was such a relief. Um, I was given words when I didn't have them otherwise. And I really, really, really love the liturgy now more than ever, I think. But I think there is a, there, there are spaces and ways, you know, that, that are important. I don't know, RJ, what do you think? I was thinking about um, this Wednesday noontime women's Bible study that I lead, um, mm -hmm. who are called the Stitchers, because sometimes we read the Bible and they stitch, but it's informally known as um, Stitch and Bitch, because, oh, you know, they get together uh, and stitch right. and complain. <laughs> right. It's so great. Yeah. Um, I love that group so much. They're just amazing. Um, and they've started to pray, um, and not just there, but 
in the community. Like one of the ladies came in a few months ago and she's like, I was at the hospital visiting someone and I was talking to someone in the elevator and I just, I just prayed for them. I never done, like, what are you doing to us? What is happening? And I was like, that is amazing. <laughs> and then a few of them are in the bell choir and they have practices on Monday nights and they are practicing in the church and the doors to, the doors were open and this family just wandered in because they heard the bells and they needed prayer for a, a really serious medical condition they were going through. And it, some of the ladies who were in this stitchers group gathered around them in a circle and laid hands on them and prayed oh, for them. Gorgeous. You know, and, and uh, there's this new woman who's been coming um, and she's new to our church and, and she referred to the group recently as like you, as a bunch of holy rollers. And I was like, are we holy rollers? Are we? I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> Yes. You know? Um, I love RJ leading this yeah. crew or like just I being too. their cheerleaders. I'm so great. I, I mean, RJ them. should only ever lead a group called the, the Stitch and Bitchers. Like, Stitch I just am bitch. here for that energy. Between um, that group and that so my beautiful. Thursday morning men's group, I have never loved Aww. like leading Bible studies so much. So it's, uh, so it's just, it's cool. And we also yeah. like to, but we also do noonday prayer, you know, yeah. together. And noonday prayer is beautiful. Yeah. It takes yes. five minutes, and you read a psalm, and you say a prayer, and there's these historic prayers, and and um, it's just a, a beautiful melding of spon- the spontaneous and liturgical and yes. the Bible and swearing and, you know, yeah. it's just really, it's, it's like, it's, it's the kingdom of God, that's, you know, it makes me very happy. Be- that's so. beautiful to hear. I, I wonder about this, um, you know, this is what people for- forget, because there's so many people in li- liturgical traditions who've come from non-liturgical traditions, who've come from, like, yeah. basically, the Episcopal Church is full of Baptists, and the, the Roman Catholic Church mm-hmm. is full of former Pentecostals and things like that, and it's, uh, w- 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 there's so much you gain by receiving these beautiful words that have been thought out and have been given to you and have just, you know, to, yes. to, to be saying the same thing as other people have said, not only around uh, in throughout history, but around the world at that moment is a very, very it's beautiful incredible. thing. You do, though, and Simeon Zoll writes about this in his Holy Spirit book, you tend to lose a little of the emotional immediacy that you get in, mm. yes, the sort of Jesus is my boyfriend type songs, but also just the <laughs> small, that, that's what that's what evangelicalism does so well, is the emotional piece, is this sort of like, let's let's stop what we're doing right now and pray like like let's let's yes. not yes. let's not put some sort of nice bow you know some sort of can't see our way know, through let's pray let's you yeah. know us to thy service and you know, let's not let's not do some benediction let's actually talk right. to god right now and i always in the name of the creator <laughs> yeah I think that like <laughs> that directness is something. Sustainer. If you could marry it, and you can to a liturgical, there's no no reason not to. I think you've got a very very potent thing on your hands. But I I, I think that sometimes the urge, the lack of urgency that I see at least in mainline liturgical situations usually betrays a slight, you know, lack of faith or a sense of like I was you, you know prayer yeah. changes us and that's what's important. But and and it does. I believe that that's the AA thing, and I think it's true. But do you believe? prayer actually does anything because i actually i, I think that that is anyone I think listening that god is actually <laughs> yeah. there's some mystery i don't quite get yes. it but there's not it's not a gumball machine but i do think that prayer actually matters 
and like it's not yeah. just yeah. a and and I I God saw it up. you know frankly in some of our response to the pandemic and the way that what we prioritize there's just was a lack of urgency compared to certain other denominations and or a different set of values I don't want to get into I wish we were more like that and I wish we were more like this I just know that when you are confronted with that kind of urgency and those sort of prayers often by the way do so for whatever reason come from older women I, I just think it's it's a it's a gift oh, that God God gives and um <laughs> and I always their husbands are all dead. They've lost at least one kid in the war. You know what I mean? Like, There's a couple of women out there. I know, like, and they're all in the kind of same demographic, and they all have Mockingbird uh, on their prayer list. And I'm sort of like, thank yeah. God, you know, oh, because it's, it's not a lot of the prayer warriors. It's not a lot of old CEOs telling me that Wrap they're doing that. <laughs> you crying? That's so. I mean, it's just like. Yeah, it's like when my grandmother died, I was like, who will pray for us Earthside? Like, those are, mm. there's something about that lived life that just, um, in those prayers that, that, that they, you know, it's funny because those aren't, we're not talking about, especially when we talk about older women who have seen so much of life. Like, it's not like life has been easy. It's not like they haven't known death and loss and sickness. Um, and, and yet they're still there with these, with these, words of faith like it is you know i don't know it's i it's funny my mom always really struggled in the episcopal church with some of the formality and you know i was raised in like a very very like you know low rent episcopal church as things go and um and she still struggled with it um and i remember saying to her sort of towards the end of her life. Cause she'd really pulled back from church altogether. And I was like, what, like, what do you think mom? Like where, like, let's get, I know you want to go to church. Like where, you know, where should you go to church? And they had these neighbors that lived across the street who they were really good friends with who were black, who went to one of the black churches in town and who were super, super faithful. And my mom said, I'm thinking about asking Betty if she'll let me come to church with her. Yeah. Oh, and I said, Mom, I think that's great. And she said, you know, I grew up and I, you know, it always, I, I wish I had talked about it with her more, but she said, you know, I grew up in a church that was originally called Centerfield Baptist Church because it was in the middle of a field and your grandmother who had no musical training was the choir director. And, you know, it just was so vastly different. And I... You know, I, I don't know. I, I always take a lot of comfort in the fact that as mom was dying, the woman who's praying over her wasn't like, hold on, let me get my prayer book. You know what I mean? I mean, that was what I'm told is the nurse that crawled into the vehicle with mom just yeah. prayed. I, I think that there's a, one. This is one of the reasons why I, I find myself defending the prosperity gospel more and more. Those a lot of prosperity gospel huh. churches tend to be uh, multiracial or just just black churches essentially. And one yeah. of the, yes, for um, from my, my perspective, uh, you know, I'm not sure God's interested in what we call the empire building or whatever it is. But you actually go to one of those churches, and what you find is people are praying about what they're talking to God, not about God. They're talking to God about what they actually are thinking about and actually wanting and what's really going on. Yes. And my, my father yeah. talks about this all the time and I can, I can hear it in one ear and out the other. And then I actually go with him to one of these churches and I'm like, oh my gosh, what we would dismiss oh, wow. as a prosperity thing is really yeah. just a bunch of people saying, what is it you actually like, like let's be, let's be oh, urgent. And, there's and, an immediacy. And honest and let's there's an talk. Immediacy. And so there's, uh, I think that that's really important and it, it 
And date it isn't it so everything. much easier to judge other people than to ask God for what we really need? <laughs> isn't it so much easier to look at people praying that way and say, look at them in their prosperity gospel or look at them in their whatever, than to look internally and say, what is my great pain? What is my great grief? It's like the Brazil article we read recently. Why are people going to the Pentecostal church? Because they're talking about actual real things and what I, my real life and what I need. And, and God, is, God is here. They're talking about God as if he's actually here right now. Yeah. Well, so yeah, but there's, there, I will say, there's, there's a way to meld yeah. it. There is a way to meld it. I've, I've, I've seen it. That's what we're trying that. to do. Yeah. I mean, if that's, if yeah. I've, I've seen it, I've seen it at work. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's, um, but it, it is worth trying at least. That's what, you know, I think, Absolutely. um, Jason Michelli wrote an amazing, amazing piece this week on Mockingbird called No One's Making a Docu-Series About Ordinary Churches. It's so good. And he says no one, he was watching a documentary about Hillsong and all that that happened there in New York. Uh, The sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or at least the Justin... And like Justin really Bieber good abs. And, like, yeah. oh my gosh. I've Selena never seen abs like that on an ordained person. I don't know how Totally it. worth it. He said, like, totally worth like, it. Like, definitely keep it. He says, diet. the truth okay, is, no one is producing a documentary tell all about the guy who volunteers to dig a grave for a stranger or the ladies who made lunch gratis for the hundred or so mourners in attendance at the funeral I did last week. Just as serial programs give us a, serial killer programs give us an outsized fear of our fellow humans, the stories of glittering, grifting churches and the celebrity pastors uh, who are really whitewashed tombs obscure the everyday grace going on in ordinary churches. And I wonder if the zeal with which we consume these tales of the church's failures and frauds betrays an altogether different but alarming impoverishment. Contrasting a theology of glory with the theology of the cross, Gerhard Ferde, the Lutheran theologian, writes that a theology of glory's superficial optimism about our ability to be good and holy breeds ultimately breeds ultimate despair. There's certainly an air of despair to uh, of fascination with stories like Hillsong or Mars Hill. It's all a grift. It's all meaningless. If Ferde is correct, then such despair is the offspring of an assumption about Christianity that is itself a lie. Christianity, as we will all remind ourselves on Ash Wednesday, uh, is not about good people getting better, but about bad people coping with their failures to be good. The critique so many Christians bear today against Christianity is itself a Christian critique. The story of Christians' failings is a story of first told by Christians. Uh, what's remarkable about the Old Testament is its character as a kind of ruthless diary of Israel's own unfaithfulness. The New Testament is no different in this regard. Not only is Christ's church built on a fool named Rock who tried walking on water, the apostles showed no inclination to expunge their spotty record from Scripture. They denied Christ. They betrayed him. They abandoned Jesus. And later, Paul attempted to kill them. The same Paul who confesses to the church in Rome, the one thing I want to do, I do not do. It's this pessimistic, this, it's this realistic pessimism about our ability to be good and holy, a frankness that Luther called a theology of the cross, that frees us for the opposite of despair. He closes by saying, I remember a few years ago, I went to the hospital to visit a pain-in-the-ass parishioner who had only recently passed around a petition to have me ousted by the bishop. I walked into his room only to discover that a lay leader who liked the parishioner even less than me, helping this man to use the bedpan, only the gospel, the news of our collective culpability and God's ridiculous refusal to cancel us could produce such an act of humility. No Discovery Plus series will ever capture such a moment on film, but it's not because such moments are rare. I've been a pastor a little over 20 years, and I have enough grace sightings to fill all the Sundays for the rest of my life. That's so good. 
I mean, thank you, Jason. I, you know, it's it's as much as like right, like I love what I, one thing I love about us is like we were just like the Episcopal Church really needs to like get a little, you know, I don't know, like we could pray better, we we could see God more immediately. Yes, we could do these things, and also still in mainline Protestantism. Like I remember going in, you know, uh, a few years ago to a hospital room and like washing a woman's hair because that's what she needed, and there wasn't a nurse there to help, and like it's just like. And I don't do that because I'm a good person or a nice person. I'm definitely neither of those things most days. But I did it because, like, somebody needed to wash her hair, and I'm Christian. And, like, washing seems like the most Christian thing. So, you know, I I don't know. I just I, – he's right, though. We, we really are kind of obsessed with these stories of these massive churches' downfalls. And it's sad. It's like bad advertisement for us. He quotes Francis Bufford saying that the church is a failing but never quite failed attempt by limited people to perpetuate the unlimited generosity of God in the world. Hmm. Oh, yeah, Christians make a lot of mistakes, but God also does amazing things through Christians. And I think in his grace hides them. I think about that also a lot, about the hiddenness, right? What does Paul say? Your lives are hidden with God and Christ, and when Christ is revealed in his glory, so too will your lives be, that we won't actually have any concept of what good we've done or haven't done or whatever until um, sort of Jesus comes back and shows us that he hides from us what he, you know, the work that he's doing. Um, and it's not, it's not glamorous, but it's not meant to be. It's, uh, mm. you know... I thought about, you know, uh, Paul Farmer, the doctor who founded Partners in Health, yeah. died this week, and he's kind of a, a very, very fascinating character, did a lot of, a lot of good. So young. He, uh, Alan Jacobs unearthed this quote of him saying, I have fought the long defeat, which is a Tolkien phrase. I fought the long defeat and brought other people on to fight the long defeat, and I'm not going to stop because we keep losing. Now, I actually think sometimes we, we may win. I don't dislike victory. You know, people from our background, like you, like me, we're used to being on a victory team. And actually, what we're really trying to do in Partners in Health is to make common cause with the losers. Those are very two different things. We want to be on the winning team, but at the risk of turning our backs on the losers, no, it's not worth it. So you fight the long defeat. Ugh. It's so good. <laughs> Here's to the long defeat. I mean, it's so, I mean like is, is I mean that if that's the new mission statement for the church. <laughs> Fight the long defeat. The long defeat. I love that too because gosh, I remember going to talk to uh, a particular church foundation once which shall remain nameless because I was trying to get them to donate money to this amazing organization and their basically response was we only support winners. You know, that we, we won't give money until they've proven themselves. And I was like, okay, like, I, I get that from a secular point of view, but we're Christians here. Right. We're Christians, you right. know. And then finally, they did give a bunch of money to this amazing organization a few years later once they'd proven themselves. And I was right. like, it just shake my head, dude. Like, come yeah, on. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. give money. Well, yeah. the, I'm glad to fight the long defeat with the two of you, I or at know. least to surrender or whatever it is we do. I don't yeah. feel like fighting. Um, yeah. But uh, happy, uh, this will come out right, uh, probably right just before Ash Wednesday. So, you know. Get your pancakes on. A blessed Lent and to all of you. Yeah. <laughs> Penitential uh, hope, Lent. Hope our viewers really get it right this year. Our listeners, <laughs> hope our listeners really get it right. Um, uh, anyway, thank you, both of you, and uh, we'll talk to you again in a few weeks. Bye. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye.
Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. Hey.